With sleep, of course, there's so many physiological pieces that have to align at the right time. So we need our cortisol to be low, we need our melatonin to be rising, we need our bodies to feel like they've worked enough during the day, and we need to have enough sleep pressure so adenosine built up in our system. And all of that has to happen around the right time. Today I'm talking nerdy with Nicole Shallow about all things sleep. What an ideal night of sleep looks like, how to know when you've truly gotten enough, what to do when your quality of sleep sucks, and what's happening in your brain and nervous system when you're getting a good night of sleep versus a challenging one. Nicole Shallow is a board-certified analyst and sleep specialist. She is extremely passionate about this topic and has become an authority figure in the world of sleep education. Nicole has partnered with many large brands to speak about the importance of sleep, has been featured on many, many podcasts outside of the world of behavior analysis, and is the CEO and founder of her own company, Your Behavior Gal Consulting, Inc. Nicole supports her clients directly one-to-one with a specialized focus in supporting neurodivergent children and their caregivers. Before you dive into this episode, I would love it if you could hit pause and leave us a five-star review and a written review on whatever platform you're listening on. In doing so, you help get this podcast into the ears and brains of more listeners like you. Now let's dive in and start talking nerdy. Welcome to Talk Nerdy to Me, Nicole Shallow. I'm so excited to have you on here talking about one of my absolute favorite, not only topics to talk about, but my favorite things in the entire world. And something that I know that a lot of people are struggling with right now and something that I personally didn't feel super challenged by until this past year. And now, especially after having firsthand experience with just how debilitating getting really poor quality sleep can be, I am just so ready to talk about this with you and also share with listeners who I know are going to get so much from this conversation So thank you for carving out the time today to come on and talk with me. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So my first question for you is how did you personally begin this journey of specializing in sleep? Did it come from experience and having really poor quality sleep or insomnia or a hard time sleeping in general? Or what got you started in specializing in this area? Yeah, so I was in my master's degree. I'm a behavior analyst. So my master's degree is in special education and specifically autism and developmental disabilities. And during my master's, my professor was talking about how behavior analysts can actually support sleep. We have specialists in feeding here who are just amazing. And we have specialists in toileting. And that could just be so life-changing for families when you can tackle these big pieces, but no one was really looking at sleep. And the research was there in our field. There's a lot of research and behavior change. And usually that's your first go-to when it comes to sleep support, but it's hard to access. And I had families at the time who were really struggling, kids staying up all night, sleeping all day, waking up for a few hours in the middle of the night, worry about safety. And it was just really hard I didn't know enough to be able to help them. And I was like, I need to know more. I also reflected on my own experience sleeping. I have a twin sister. She sleeps. Well, now she struggles with sleep. But when we were younger, she was fine. But we both have busy minds and busy days, busy jobs. And noticing how sleep can really take a toll 
And I do argue that I don't think I ever learned how to fall asleep. And there's people out there who maybe they don't realize that they learned it and they learned it really well. Those are the ones who can sleep anywhere, who can easily just go to bed without, you know, a rigid routine and things like that. They just know how to get into bed, close their eyes and let sleep take over without anything getting in the way, like the thoughts and things like that. So that's my job is to teach people how to engage in that behavior of falling asleep. And there's so many pieces to that puzzle. That's so interesting. I've never heard anyone talk about the experience of falling asleep as something that we learn or something that we don't learn or something that we can learn to have a really challenging relationship with. And I'm curious if you can speak a little bit more to that very first piece before we dive in a little bit deeper. Like, what does it actually take for us to fall asleep? And how do we learn how to do that better? if it's something that we never learned in the first place. Yeah. So with sleep, of course, there's so many physiological pieces that have to align at the right time at night. So we need our cortisol to be low. We need our melatonin to be rising. We need our bodies to feel like they've worked enough during the day. And we need to have enough sleep pressure. So adenosine built up in our system And all of that has to happen around the right time. And if you go to bed too early, I'm sure people who are listening have tried this. You just won't sleep because you're like, I'm so tired physically, maybe mentally. But your body's like, nope, we're not ready yet. Things aren't aligned. And that's why kids sleep schedules. Like you just have to be so rigid. And as we grow as adults, our schedules become, well, all over the place. The boundaries get dropped. We almost have to think of ourselves as little kids. Like we do need to have those basics of meal routines, exercise routines, spending time outside, free play and fun. But I argue, and I know this from my own personal experience, is I work a lot and I find the balance. I'm also on screens a heck of a lot during the day. And we know that can wreak havoc on our physiological, like everything underneath. So I think there's a, well, I know, I know there's a lot of environmental pieces that are interfering with people's sleep. And I know for me, like since the pandemic and being on screens, I used to be in person a lot. I never did Zoom meetings. I never did online. I was always in person. So since having to do more screens, I've noticed a difference and I've had to put things in place to help me. So yeah, it's so complex, but it's, Going back to the basics of routine and rhythm and trying to stick to something and whatever is getting in the way, holding boundaries around that. Okay. So what I'm hearing is a lot of environmental and getting our physiology aligned with our routines. And something that you mentioned before was also this cognitive component to it, that some people have learned what the experience is like of not, I don't want to use the word indulging in thoughts because I don't think that that's the best word, but it's the one that's coming up the most right now. Indulging and engaging in thoughts or rumination or obsessing or stressing or whatever it may be and not allowing sleep to take over. Under ideal circumstances, what cognitively needs to happen in order for us to fall asleep in the first place? 
Well, we need to know how to silence the mind and know how to unhook from thoughts if they do come up. So what can accidentally happen, and this is how insomnia starts, is it's an accidental conditioning of bed means rumination. And now every time I get into bed, I ruminate. Or maybe I think about work. So some people work from their bed. And so every time you're in bed, you think about work. The bed is only for sleep and sex. That's it. That's all you should be doing in it. You want to make sure that that bed is really cueing sleep. And personal experience right now, my bed is cueing restless legs. (laughs) Like every time I get in, I'm having some like hormone stuff go on right now. And I experience severe restless legs. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, Alex. Have you? I don't have any personal experience with it. I didn't really understand what it was until earlier this year. One of my best friends in the entire world who came to visit me in Bali, we were traveling around Indonesia for a little bit together and at times sharing the same bed. And he had warned me ahead of time. He's like, I have a little bit of like a restless leg syndrome thing going on right now. And I was like, yeah, no problem. It's fine. Just book the place that has one bed. There were moments when it really felt like a fish flying out of water and then landing back down again on the other side. I was shocked at just how much movement this entails. And for me, just sleeping near him like sleep wasn't happening for me. I can't even imagine being that person who's experiencing it. I get up and I try to walk around and and legs up the wall and all these things. And sometimes you just move through it. They're unsure about why it happens. There can be like multiple reasons. Mine tend to be tied to progesterone where higher progesterone, the restless legs come in. And so navigating that with support has been the best way to do that. And movement. It's a vicious cycle because when you don't have good night's sleep, you're so tired, you don't want to move during the day. And then, but movement can really help decrease that discomfort at night. But for me, it's learning the cognitive piece. There's two approaches you could do cognitive behavioral therapy, which is more of that stimulus control, as well as switching the thoughts, which is getting out of bed if you're uncomfortable, trying to only associate bed with sleep, go and do something calming relaxing. Once you feel tired again, go back to your bed. So some nights I'll do that. Other nights I just stay in bed and use more of a acceptance and commitment training approach, which is accepting that this is what it is. Be tired tomorrow and it's okay. That's the harder one for me, for sure. I do a balance of both based on how I'm doing because in the middle of the night, Logical decisions are not great. (laughs) Like you know what you're supposed to do, but you're also so tired. And I find that helps when I'm supporting clients because I get it. Maybe not always to the extent that they're experiencing it, but I do know what disrupted sleep can be like. So cognitively decreasing that association so that rumination isn't happening. Do you have any tools or any tips that you can give to listeners who are ruminating how to unhook from it other than physically getting themselves out of bed or just accepting, okay, this is where I'm at. I'm ruminating. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Is there anything else that you think can be really helpful in those moments? Yeah. So I always, if I'm working with clients, even from young kids, this can happen. If working with them around this, it's more practicing during the day. 
So if you can engage in mindfulness activities like meditation, guided meditations, that can really help you practice that behavior of letting the thoughts go. Because if you're only practicing it at night, like that's a lot of pressure when you're already tired. So it's good to build up that skill during your day and you may see a shift in the evening. Sometimes rumination can also be a sign of where do you need help? Where might you need some more support? Is there a boundary that's being broken? Why is it that you're taking work with you? And do you have to? right? Like, am I in choice around this? I don't know when it clicked because <laughs> now I will i don't think about work too much in bed anymore, but I used to. But it's training and teaching yourself that work is done when you close the laptop or when you leave the office. Try to give yourself a signal of it's done. You have an end of your day and doing something that supports you. The rumination usually is a symptom of something bigger And how can you find a support system around you to help you navigate that? And you might see the worries come down. That makes a lot of sense and is super, super helpful. So beyond just this experience of being able to unhook from thoughts and fall asleep really easily, under the most ideal circumstances, what is happening from the time that we fall asleep until we get up out of bed in the morning? What does an ideal night of sleep actually look like? I mean, if you Google it, you can see a chart that shows how you go through different sleep stages throughout the night. It's an average chart. Everyone's brains are going to experience different levels of different sleep depending on what happened that day. So if you've had a really stressful day, you might not get as much deep sleep because cortisol is high. So you may get cortisol spikes in the night, which can wake you up. And there's just like so many things that can impact your sleep architecture is what we call it. But what happens on a general night is you hit sleep, you go through all the stages. So you start at light sleep, move through non-REM sleep, which is four different stages. You pretty much go into deep sleep right away and you come back up into REM sleep, which is our dream sleep. And that is when usually you're paralyzed at that point. So you're not really moving. That's why when you're dreaming, you're not acting out your dreams. And you can see this in babies. Babies don't have this. That's why when you think they're sleeping, but they're moving and cooing and like crawling sometimes in their beds, they're actually sleeping, but they don't have that paralysis yet, which I find so funny. And I was like, oh, this is probably where sleep problems start because (laughs) their kids are getting woken up early. If you don't know about that. And then there we have our like night walkers and and sleep talkers and things like that. So you might not have the full paralysis, but most people do. And REM sleep, and then you kind of just repeat. And the cycles look a little bit different each time. It's about 90 minutes through a cycle. And most of our REM sleep is near the end of the night. You're more in that paralysis state near the end and more deep sleep at the beginning. If you cut your sleep short, you lose a lot of that REM sleep and REM sleep is so important for emotional regulation. There's a lot of research around using REM for PTSD. And so it's important to give yourself a long enough window, but you don't want to go to bed too early. You also don't want to sleep too long because if you sleep too long one night, you're going to have a hard time sleeping the next night. And I see that in clients where it's like they oversleep on the weekends 
the data looks great. Like it's, you know, good sleep. And then boom, super low, like five hour night. And they're like, I don't know what happened. I was like, well, you had a lot of sleep these days. And then it went down. So you're just like not tired enough. And then it goes back up and then down again. And there's this inconsistent schedule. It's better to have more consistent, consolidated sleep, maybe less hours, but it's more efficient than to try to increase your quantity too fast. So it's finding that average that seems to work for you. My experience, when I sleep nine hours, I know I'm getting like a seven to six hour sleep the next night. It's so bizarre, but you can see it in the data. And I've seen it time and time again, is that there's a pattern and the clients, when they see that pattern, they're like, oh, okay. I love data and being able to show clients their data, like their sleep on a visual, it helps motivate them to make changes. They're like, oh, we are seeing progress. Like we're seeing that trend line go up. We're seeing that average We're not seeing the same dips that we were before. And so that's the goal. So you want like high efficiency sleep first, then you start to build the quantity. That makes a lot of sense. And I selfishly really want to ask you a question, which is that when we get too much sleep and then we feel tired afterwards, what is happening there? Because that's something that I'm definitely guilty of. And it's not just, you know, severe sleep deprivation and then sleeping for 10 hours. If my schedule allows it, I can sleep consistently for 10 hour nights, multiple days in a row and wake up feeling really tired. So I'm curious if you can explain more about what might be happening there. Honestly, that's a good question. I just know that sometimes oversleeping doesn't always lead to more energy. And I couldn't really dive into the physiological stuff of that. But it's trying to figure out why is my body needing this much sleep? Like, why am I not waking up? What is what is happening? Sometimes people who are experiencing, and I don't know if this is your story, but like if you're feeling depressed or anxious or like really just emotionally, mentally exhausted, getting out of bed can be challenging. But it sounds like you just slept. I'm just like, wow, that was great. What time is it? It must be 6 a.m. And then I look at the clock and it's 10 and I'm like, oh, okay, great. Well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes it happens and we're wondering like the why. But yeah, if you oversleep, you can feel more groggy and it may just be dependent on how much like different stages you got and what stage are you waking up out of. Sometimes that can impact it as well. Thank you so much for sharing that. So what is usually happening if we are getting a really poor night of sleep? Is there a common cause that you think can evoke that besides just never learning how to fall asleep? When people can't stay asleep, when they're waking up a lot in the middle of the night, when they sleep all the way through the night and then they wake up the next morning and they still feel absolutely exhausted. What do you think is happening in some of these situations? So the first step for me, because I am a behavioral sleep specialist, is to rule out medical because that's completely out of my scope. But there's a lot of medical pieces that could be going on. And in in Canada, we have like universal health care. So our doctor's appointments are about 10 minutes long. And you have to kind of know the exact questions you need to tell them because sometimes what happens is things can get missed. So during the first meeting with me, 
is we dive into, are there any possible medical considerations? Is there any nutrient deficiencies that may be occurring? So iron and vitamin D, those are really important for sleep quality. And if you have low iron or low vitamin D, and there's a couple other nutrients that a nutritionist would be able to dive into, then that could also impact the quality of sleep you're getting for women. Like mentioned before, my own experiences, hormones, hormone changes, so like menopause, puberty, that can really impact quality of sleep, stress. So if you have high cortisol, if you've got any adrenal stuff going on, if you've got any gastrointestinal issues going on, like these all can impact sleep and having someone go through all of that can be extremely helpful because sometimes it's behavioral. But if you've tried everything and you're still like, I'm doing everything right, everything I think I should be doing, I'm doing, but it still is really hard. There could be maybe an underlying sleep disorder. One that's rarely diagnosed and hard to catch is narcolepsy. Narcolepsy, and there's some great speakers on that actually who have it. It's that extreme daytime fatigue, even if they're sleeping a ton. I learned that it's an autoimmune, so you can be born with it, but you can also develop it later on, which I found very interesting. So yeah, there's a lot of medical pieces. I think people are unsure of how to explore that and who to get the help from. And sometimes for me, that's they have a meeting with me. We do the initial assessment. I'm like, okay, here is where you should go ask this person this. You should go look into this and let's like make sure that all these things are taken care of before adding the behavior change stuff. Because if you're trying to change your behavior over top of medical or physiological reasons, it's going to be extremely hard and defeating. If we can set aside all of the medical, we know that that's not an issue. What are some of the behavior changes that actually need to take place in order to I don't want to say ensure that we can get a better night of sleep, but tip the scales more in the favor of getting a really solid night of high quality sleep. Yeah. So when we're talking about adults, it's really about timing. So building in, looking at daily schedules, how can you create some more predictability for your body to really anchor your body clock? So in the morning, what we need is your cortisol has to rise in the morning, So you need to move, you need to get outside eating so it can get the digestive system going. So once you turn the clock on for those, so basically you're setting a timer like, okay, body, we're ready. Like, let's go turn that digestive system on so that it will be ready to turn off into the evening. Turn your adenosine builder on. So you want to start moving. You want to start doing things. So that ensures that by the time it's time to go to sleep, the sleep pressure is high enough You want to make sure you're eating well and you have your regular meals with nutrition that's going to support all the hormones and all the things that need to be in place for sleep to happen. This isn't going to solve the issue right away. Like these are the first phase pieces that I always suggest. Morning light, daylight during the day, because light just plays such a huge role in our circadian rhythm. You spend time in an office all day which I am in my den. I have no windows here. So I have to actively get up and go outside and go do something. And then yeah, movement, eating regularly. And then at nighttime, really building in a wind down routine, 
that works for you. So setting boundaries with things that you know distract you in the evening. For me, that's my phone. I put it away. If I could get rid of it, I probably would now. I'm like, I don't really like this. And I also like to just be off the grid and I put it in a drawer somewhere because for me, my brain, if it's out of sight, out of mind. So it's perfect. And I've had to work on that. And some days it's harder if I'm feeling more anxious or if I'm feeling like I need a distraction. I'll scroll a little bit. But invention of our lovely friend TikTok. (laughs) And (laughs) Instagram is scrollable, but I find it's not as addictive as some of the other apps. YouTube is pretty addictive too. I stay away from those because my brain's very sensitive to the dopamine hits. And I've worked with clients where we just shift the screen use. So watching TV on a TV is better than having a phone or an iPad like right here. It's further away and it's more passive use of screens, you know, and it's nice. Sometimes you're connecting with someone over a show. And I tried to be really rigid about this for me. I'm like, oh, 8 p.m. Like I got to cut screens off two hours before bed. And no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> There's no way because I love watching shows. That's always been a part of my routines. And we love like my husband and I love watching shows together, cooking shows mostly or Survivor, which starts this week. And it's important to embed that. But how can I adjust it? So using more passive screen users versus active. Our phones can really trigger things accidentally you know, you might get a news article that is just like, really, I do not need to know this right now. You may get a text from a friend or from someone you don't really want to hear from. And it can just start to snowball into the evening. And that can really, it can interfere with the melatonin, with that cortisol. It just interferes with things that we need in order to fall asleep. So our phone, if you can find boundaries with it, put it away. The first few nights will be hard, but find an alternative. Always find an alternative before. So you always want an alternative behavior that will still help you meet your needs. And if that's watching TV, if that's maybe baking something, if that's writing in your journal, whatever that is for you, that can be your evening routine. But the phone, put it away. I wish I had a landline. Can you still get one? Is that even possible? Like, I mean, there's a jack in the wall. I don't know. I don't even know if my parents still have one, but I don't know if it's like out of date to buy one. I think it would probably be out of date. You'd probably have to go to some sort of antique store, but I think you could still make it happen. One of my favorite, favorite yoga and meditation teachers of all time, her name is Kat Villain, and she had an old brick phone until like last year one of the old school flip phones that you have to press like one button three times to get to the letter that you wanted to get to in order to send it back my dad still has that (laughs) and he and he turns it off when he's at home and only turns it on when my mom goes out (laughs) i love that i think that's what we need to go back to public service announcement from talk nerdy to me go out and swap in your iphone for an old school brick flip phone I think that's the right move. So if somebody gets a really shitty night of sleep, how can we recover from that? Is there anything that we can do in the morning or the next day to begin to take care of ourselves a little bit more? Is there any way to get back what we miss? You can never really get back what you miss. And I am in full acceptance of that. Like last night, I woke up a few times the night before I was up for two hours in the middle of the night. 
and you never really can get back what you miss. However, you can support yourself to ensure that the next night hopefully will be a bit better. And by doing that, just continuing with maybe a softer routine, like going out for a walk or just going outside to sit, just getting that daylight in the morning is going to help wake you up. Managing your caffeine intake. So we haven't really touched on caffeine or alcohol or any substances, really. They A lot of them impact the quality of sleep that we get. Caffeine being one of them. And this is not a cut caffeine out of your life because I drink tea and I'll drink tea until about noon. And then I don't usually have caffeine after that. I'm very sensitive. My body does not process things quickly. It does not process alcohol quickly. It does not process caffeine quickly. So I have to give my body lots of runway room so that it's all out of my system by the time I go to bed. Noticing how much you're drinking. When are you drinking it? The half-life of caffeine is about five to six hours. So the more you consume, the longer it's going to take for it to get out of your system. And that can impact the deep sleep that you're getting. Some people say that they can fall asleep on caffeine and they definitely can. However, it does impact that sleep architecture we talked about and alcohol too. managing alcohol intake. When we're struggling with sleep, sometimes it's like, oh, you know, maybe alcohol will help. Like it's a sedative. It does immediately. If you have a racing mind, it quiets it down really fast. So the reinforcing value of it is there immediately, but it wreaks havoc on the quality of sleep that we get. It actually blocks REM sleep, so you're not getting much REM sleep at all. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but when you drink alcohol, if you drink too much, you wake up the next morning and you're like, I feel like garbage (laughs) and just like, why am I so tired and feel so sick? And it's just because you just, you slept, you sedatively slept, but your body was just busy working all night to get that out of your system. So Those two substances definitely trying to avoid because it can be a vicious cycle after a couple nights of rough sleep. People will do anything to get better sleep. Sleep is the ultimate reinforcer. (laughs) It is so motivating to achieve it. And so that's how we develop interesting habits around getting it. It's really interesting to hear you say that we can be so motivated to get a better night of sleep. And yet we're so, as a society, so addicted to our iPhones. It feels like that's the one thing that's the hardest to break away from. So I'm curious what you think the relationship is between those two things, between the iPhones constantly trying to pull our attention, but we still have this strong motivation to sleep. Like, why is it still so hard to break away when we will go literally insane without getting sleep. Yeah, there's something about the behavior use of the iPhone. So when I talk to clients, I look at like, why? Why are we using the iPhone? Or why are we scrolling, really, particularly? Usually it's scrolling. It's something on there. It's connecting, maybe. With teenagers, I see a lot of social connection through iPhone, video games, things like that. Very socially motivated. Um, So looking at the why... And then seeing, can we find a replacement for this? Or what kind of support do you need to be able to break away from it? From experience, like personal experience and working with clients, the iPhone use is, it's just an escape. It's an escape from reality. It's an escape from the discomfort of the thoughts. It's, you know, distraction from anything bigger that's going on. And sometimes you have to turn towards and inwards to figure out why am I using my phone? 
Sometimes it's just entertainment. Like my husband, it does not bother him. He will fall asleep no problem after scrolling through Twitter and looking at all his sports because that's relaxing to him. <laughs> Whereas because he doesn't have things that are just spontaneously going to pop up. And he's quite good at letting things go. Whereas for me, my brain can't really do that. And if I am on my phone too long, like I'll just get riled up and excited and uh, maybe just dive into something else. So I was just going to say, I'll go on like a two hour long scroll of the tiny house of my dreams that I want to build. <laughs> yeah. It's like midnight. I'm like, how did I get here? Like, why am I two hours deep into looking at tiny houses in the middle of Bend, Oregon? I've never been there before. I don't like living in cold environments. Why am I orchestrating and creating this entire fantasy? Anyway, I'm sure there's a distraction or uh, an escapism component to it. But yeah, I find it everything that you're saying just feels so accurate. And I'm curious if there are any myths that are really present in your work that you're constantly re-educating people on. Because something that I haven't heard you say yet in this episode that I was expecting is something to the effect of getting eight hours of consistent sleep every single night. You mentioned that for you, nine hours might be a little too much or in clients, perhaps getting six or seven consistently every single night can be better. So I'm curious what you think about not just the consistency component, but how many hours of sleep per night do we need? Is there a rule book that we all should be following or is it a little more subjective? Well, it's subjective. The average, so if we think of a bell curve, is like the eight, you know, or like the seven to nine hours is like our average for humans. And there's going to be humans on either end, some that are going to need 10 and people with different needs or different diagnoses, some need more. Like I've seen clients who do need like 11, 12 in order to reduce risk of seizures or reduce risk of night terrors or whatever that looks like. And then there's some clients who are like six, I'm good on six. They're healthy. They don't see any side effects from the lack of sleep. They're waking up on time. Like they wake up awake, they go to sleep easily. They wake up awake. They're not waking up by an alarm. It's knowing what does your body need on average and trying to stick within that average. Even take a week of your own data. Like how much am I sleeping? And look at the average amount and then create a sleep window around that. So let's say on average you're sleeping eight and a half because you're longer. Like that's probably a longer person. Some tights are nine, some are seven and a half. But on average, maybe it's eight and a half. Well, you want to give yourself maybe a nine and a half hour window. It takes like 15 to 20 minutes to fall asleep. As well as like when you wake up in the morning, you might need just a little bit. So you want to give yourself a decent window of sleep every night and just stick to that. So that when you do have the rough nights or you do have nights where you're just like you mentioned, where you sleep 10 hours and you're like, how did I do that? Sometimes traveling too, like you can start to see sleep catch up a little bit. I know for me, jet lag, like I will sleep a lot after jet lag sometimes or very little. It depends. But just keeping that window really consistent for you and holding that boundary around sleep and around relaxation and rest. If you feel it, sometimes you can go to sleep, but you're like, I didn't even feel like I slept last night. Just trust that you did because the research shows that even though you cognitively perceive that you didn't, 
when you hook up to like all those machines, you did. Your body did rest and you just need to start the new day and just set it up again. So what I can say is just keep routine, keep that structure, and it's challenging in a world that we live in today. So it takes a little bit extra energy, but your sleep will thank you for it. Thank you for sharing that with all of us. The last few things that I wanted to ask are in terms of sleep supplementation and taking melatonin, taking magnesium, things like that to kind of jumpstart our rhythm. I'm curious how you feel about bringing any of those supplements in to make a difference or reset our schedule or for a little extra support. Yeah. So as a behavior analyst, I don't make recommendations on supplements just within scope of practice. I always suggest talking to someone who can and understanding why are you taking this? Is there a reason why your melatonin may not be high enough in the night? Do you actually know that your melatonin is low? So if you're taking melatonin, you should be supplementing it. And there are some people who, especially neurodivergent clients who are more inclined to actually have lower melatonin for multiple reasons. Though they said melatonin has really saved them. And I, as a teenager, I took melatonin, but it can become a dependency and there isn't enough research yet. So really stay critical around supplementation and and what you're taking. There's no magic pill. And there's a magic pill to make sleep better. Everyone will be sleeping amazing, but they're not. I tried melatonin actually for jet lag. So I was like, oh, the research says it can be helpful. It did not help me. I was like, my body was just like all over the place. Like it just, maybe I did it wrong. I don't know. I read the instructions. I was like, I think I just have to run through this jet lag. And I was okay. Taking magnesium. Again, I think it's one of those pieces that is your body low in it? Do you need it? Have you talked to someone who understands it? Because too much magnesium, the side effects are uncomfortable. You will be on the toilet for a very long time. And every supplement differs. So in Canada, melatonin is not regulated. One pill could have one gram. That's what it says in the box. Another pill could have five milligrams. You just don't know. And there's lots of fillers in these things. Some people will take NyQuil or they'll take, you know, anything to just get some sleep. So really ask yourself why and make sure you do your due diligence talk to someone who understands it and then make the decision instead of rushing to the pills or rushing to supplements. You want to make sure you're taking care of your health and putting that first. So if someone was not looking for a magic pill but wanted to actually make behavioral changes, where can they learn more about you and from you? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram the most. And there's a lot of good information there. And I also have information and blogs on the website. So at your behavior gal and behavior is spelled with a U because I'm Canadian. And that is, yeah, that's where you can find me always on there sharing information. You can send me a DM too. If you're like, where do I start? (laughs) Happy to answer simple questions. Amazing. And links to all of that will be in the show notes. I'm curious if you have any other programs or offerings that are happening right now for anybody who's interested in working more directly with you. Yeah, so I'm launching, I don't know how many behavior analysts will be listening. However, I am launching a sleep competency training for other behavior analysts. 
And I feel like it's just, it's a missing piece in our field. And we don't get the coursework, we don't get the training, but everyone we work with, a lot of them struggle with it. And how can we help our clients really set up for success? So that's something that I'm launching for October 28th as our first session. But I also do one-on-one support for sleep. So I do various packages. Sometimes just a sleep audit is a great place for people to start where we go deep dive into what's going on and help you move forward with some basic like next steps. Because sometimes it can be hard to find the right answer on Google and knowing where to start. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that with me and with listeners, Nicole. I'm curious if you have any final words of wisdom before we close out our time together for today. For sleep, it's one of those things if you can just... If you can take care of yourself first, sleep will come easier. So really, where can you take care of yourself today? And try not to control sleep. Sleep cannot be controlled. So take it easy. Be easy on yourself. Be kind to yourself when sleep is struggling. And know that there is help out there for you. It was such a pleasure to have you talk nerdy to me. Thank you so much for coming on today. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. If you loved this episode, help us get it into the ears and brains of more listeners like you by sharing it on social media. When you share on Instagram, make sure you tag me at Alex underscore Nashton. Instagram is also the best place to send me your questions about the episode material and make requests for future topics and guests. New episodes of Talk Nerdy to Me drop every single Wednesday. When you hit subscribe, you'll be notified of new releases so you never have to miss one. Last but not least, this podcast baby would not be possible without Adam Russell. Adam, I am so grateful to have had your support in creating this podcast. Thank you for always being willing to talk nerdy to me.